morning. Uh, I'm very glad to be here this morning to share with you from God's Word. I am Will Washburn, the kids pastor here at Northway Church. And so a large part of what I do in kids ministry is teaching and telling Bible stories, right? If you grew up in kids ministry, you know that each and every Sunday you were coming to church and you were learning a different Bible story. And we don't just teach those Bible stories for the sake of our kids knowing the Bible stories. Yes, we want them to know the Bible. Yes, we want them to know their stories, those stories. But uh, for us in kids ministry, story is an incredible tool to teach bigger concepts, theological truths, um, teaching about the attributes of God. And because story is so powerful in storytelling, those ideas become very practical, very personal, and relatable to young kids through the use of story. And so storytelling is a big part of what I do as a children's minister. Storytelling and stories are also a big part of my home life right now, as my wife Lindsay and I have two little girls, uh, Simri, who is four, and Betty, who is two and a half. And if you have gone through that season of parenthood, you know that each and every night it is a non-negotiable that there will be a bedtime story. And if we don't read that bedtime story, we have two tiny humans that are ready to revolt. And so we have to read that bedtime story each and every night. And um, so a couple weeks back, my wife and I decided we were going to start trading off the responsibilities that one night I would read the stories, the next night she would read the stories. And so this particular night, it was my turn. I had Betty tucked away in her crib. I'd already read her story, and it was Simri's turn. And so it's a little bit more of a process for the four-year-old, right? She's got to make sure that she hasn't read that book in five to seven business days, and she's got to make sure that she still likes that one. And so it's a whole ordeal typically. And so this night, I come in ready for that, ready for that process. And she says right out of the gate, Daddy, I want to read from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I'm thinking, parenting win. Let's go. Uh, I would love to say we read from the Jesus Storybook Bible every night. However, it is in a rotation with Peppa Pig's Christmas and the Disney Princess Collection and a few other books. But this night she was feeling particularly spiritual and she said, let's do it, Jesus Storybook Bible. So I'm turning to the table of contents, getting ready to kind of figure out which story. And she says, I want to read the story of the sick man and the sweet girl. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Simri. What story is that? And so I'm thinking back to elementary school, uh, Sunday school days, and I'm having no recollection of the sick man and the sweet girl. And so I look at the table of contents. Surely that title is in here. Maybe her mom read her this story. So I'm looking. I, I don't see it anywhere. No sick man, no sweet girl anywhere to be found. So I result to flipping through each page of the Bible, and I'm like, is this picture the one you're talking about? And she's like, no, not that one. So we flip to the next one. And eventually we get to a picture, uh, a cartoon illustration of a man covered with bumps all over his body. And I realize, oh, man, okay, the leper, the le it's a leper. She's talking about a sick man with leprosy. And so I said, this is the story she wants. She says, yes, Daddy, the sick man and the sweet girl. And so we read this story, and as we're reading it, I am incredibly surprised how struck I am by the story of Naaman the leper and the servant girl who tells him where he can find healing. And so I finish the story, I close the, the storybook Bible, put it down, I'm heading out the door, I answer 733 questions as I'm trying to close the door, and I sneak out into my room and I grab my Bible and I turn to 2 Kings 5 to read the story again. And I read it in my own Bible, and in reading it that second time, I am convicted very gently by God um, of a few things that I needed to deal with. And so this morning, I want us to look at the story of the sick man and the sweet girl found in 2 Kings 5. So if you have your copy of God's Word or a Jesus Storybook Bible handy, will you turn there with me this morning as we learn a little bit more about Naaman and what his story teaches us. 
All right, so in verse 1, we begin, and it says this. Now Naaman was a commander in the army of the king of Aram, and he was, a, he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given him victory. He was a valiant soldier. So right out of the gate, we're getting an introduction to our main character of the story, right? We're getting an introduction to who Naaman is, and it is a very good picture. If this is his LinkedIn profile, it is looking stacked, right? He is a high commander in the army, high rank. He has success on the battlefield. He is highly regarded by his, his boss, his master, the king. We can assume respected by others as well. And he is brave and courageous. Uh, beyond that, we know in the Bible that names oftentimes have meanings, and so the name Naaman actually translates to pleasantness, to be pleasant, to be good. His name literally means good guy, okay? So Naaman is the type of guy that you want on your team, you want to be your next door neighbor that you hope your daughter will date. Naaman is the hero of our story. We're setting him up, or he's set up here to be the hero of the story. However, there is a four-word phrase at the end of verse 1 that changes that picture of Naaman. It tells us that Naaman had leprosy. See, all of Naaman's character traits, abilities, successes will be overshadowed by this disease, by this diagnosis of leprosy. If you're like me, up until a few weeks ago, I thought I knew that leprosy was a skin disease. I knew that it was deemed as unclean and people didn't want to get it, but I didn't know much more than that about leprosy. And in preparing for today's sermon, I got a good picture of what leprosy looks like. And so I want to share with you today, yes, leprosy begins as a skin disease, and it it is a skin disease, or it presents itself that way, with bumps or sores or a rash on your arm. Over time, those multiply, they get worse. Leprosy also affected the nervous system. And so nerve endings on your extremities, your toes, your feet, your fingers, your hands, you would lose feeling. So a leper may slam their finger or have a blister on the bottom of their foot and never realize it. And those wounds become worse and the damage becomes deeper until it's irreversible. Lepers would often lose their uh, fingers or their toes, their feet. Uh, Furthermore, leprosy caused the hair to fall out. It shrunk your gums, made your teeth fall out. So as Naaman's disease progressed, he would eventually look in the mirror and see something that looked far different than the man he once was and once knew. Along with those physical uh, implications of the disease, leprosy had very, very strong social and relational consequences as well. See, in the ancient world, cleanliness and uncleanliness were a very, very big deal, right? And so leprosy was deemed as an unclean illness. So leprosy brought a great deal of shame on the leper. Uh, There was a deep connection between leprosy and sin, that maybe they had some unconfessed sin or their parent did. Uh, And then furthermore, lepers were feared because of the disease, and there was a fear of catching the disease. And so they were exiled from their community, and we see leper colonies develop, where they are sent away not to be around the clean. So leper, uh, depending on how Naaman's leprosy progressed, he could end, uh, come to the end of his life, a shell of the man he once was, Um, isolated from those he loved, and slowly decaying over time. So there you have our sick man. Now it's time to meet our sweet girl, as Simran calls her. So in verse 2 we read, Now a band of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. 
So we have a young girl here who has been taken um, during a raid on the country of Israel, taken to Aram to work, to be a slave in Naaman's household. She is pulled away from her family, her parents. They could be killed or she could just be taken from them, brought into a culture that she doesn't understand, a context that she doesn't understand, and she is told that she is to work for the rest of her life. And so Naaman is set up in a lot of ways as the hero of our story in verse 1. But in verse 2, we can imagine for this young girl, Naaman and his people look much more like the villain of the story. However, we see that she doesn't respond to Naaman's illness with spite or hatred. Rather, she offers him healing for his disease. Now, my little girl attributes that to her sweetness because she views the world as as if they're mean or if they're sweet. But I believe that it's more than just that this little girl was sweet. It was that she understood the power of God at work through the prophet and that God could heal. And as a kids minister, I want to pause there for a second and just say, if you have children or you're a grandparent, do not wait to teach your children the things of God. Do not wait to lay a foundation on what God can do in his power, because the world, just like this young girl, is not going to wait to try to take them captive. She was pulled out of her environment and thrust into the world at a young age. But thankfully, we see her community, her parents, instilled in her a foundation of who God was and what he could do. And so that is one encouragement for you today, uh, parents and grandparents and those with children. So let's continue our story here. Naaman, from the young girl, has been given a solution to his problem. So let's see how he responds. It says in verse 4 that Naaman went to his master, and he told him what the girl from Israel had said. And so the king of Aram says, by all means go. And he says he'll write a letter explaining to the king of Israel that he has sent Naaman to be cured. He says, I will send you with this letter. So Naaman leaves to go to Israel with 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Don't really know what the clothing is for, but he takes it too. So uh, then he says, the letter comes to the king of Israel and it reads, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you that he may be cured of his leprosy. Now the king of Israel reads this letter and immediately freaks out. It says that he tears his robes. He says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So what the king of Israel understands is that he has no power, and furthermore, no man has any power to cure Naaman of this disease. In the ancient world, leprosy was incurable. And so he's thinking, why would they send someone to me with this impossible task of being cured? Surely they're trying to pick a fight. Surely they're trying to have some cause to start another war. And so he, he freaks out. Luckily, someone who does understand the power of God, someone who uh, truly understands how Naaman can be cured, comes on the scene. Elisha, the prophet of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, so he sends a message saying, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So then Naaman, his entourage, his horses, his chariots, his silver, his gold, roll up to Elisha's house, ready to be healed. So Naaman's there waiting, waiting for Elisha to come out, and instead Elisha sends a servant out to him with this message. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. See, Naaman goes away angry, and he says, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are the Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. See, we see Naaman right on the edge of being healed right on the edge of his problem being solved, but what prevents him from following through? His pride, right? See, Elisha didn't greet Naaman properly. He didn't greet him in the way that he expected. He didn't heal him in the way that he expected. He didn't heal Naaman in a way that made him feel good or special or important. 
Rather, Elijah gives him a simple task. Go to the river, dunk seven times, and come out clean. So Naaman turns with his pride, ready to walk away a leper. Ready to walk away unclean. However, his servants stop him, thankfully. And they stop him with very, a very logical response. His servant says, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? See, Naaman's servants stop him with a very logical argument, right? You came with all this money in hand, ready to pay it. If the prophet had told you to make a big sacrifice, surely you would have done that. If he had told you to do some heroic feat, you would have done that as well. So why won't you just go and dunk yourself seven times? Why won't you go and be washed in the river? So Naaman listens to his servant. He follows through. says he went down. He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his, fl- his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. So we see Naaman is restored. Uh, he's cleansed due to his humbling of himself and following the instructions of the prophet. Naaman, his attendants, return to Elisha, and they say to him, or Naaman says to him, I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept this gift from your servant. See, at the end of the story, we see the power of God uh, displayed through, um, through Elijah sending Naaman to be cleansed. We see the proud humbled. We see the humble used to uh, be lifted up to, to point the proud to God. We see all these things displayed in this story. And those are, not, those are all true, but those are not the things that struck me that night reading it to my daughter. What I was struck by was how familiar this story sounded. And it's not because I remembered it from elementary school, Sunday school. It's not because I had heard it before. It just sounded so familiar to me because in so many ways it was my story. And what I believe in so many ways it's your story as well. And so if you will, I'd like for you to travel back in time with me, uh, not 2,000 years ago, but to about nine years ago, to the year 2014. Uh, In that year, it was a great year. Everybody was dumping ice on themselves. Elsa told us to let it go. Taylor Swift told us to shake it off. And uh, for me, I was a senior in high school. I was getting ready to graduate. You're either like, man, he is so young, or you're like, is he qualified to be up there? I was getting ready to graduate high school, and so I want to give you a little rundown of 18-year-old Will Washburn, okay? So at the end of my senior year, I was, um, this is what I had going for me. I was student body vice president. I was the homecoming king. I had been voted on not one, but two senior superlatives, most likely to brighten your day and most likely to be famous, which I still have time to make happen, by the way. Um, as far as my hobbies and passions, I loved the fine arts, and so I really went headlong into those, uh, the fine arts, theater, music, art in high school. And so at the end of my senior year, I was cast as the lead in our second place state-winning one-act play. I was cast in the lead in the spring musical. I competed in literary in my high school career and won first place in boys solo in our state competition. So if you didn't know I was cool before that, the literary probably sealed the deal for you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, and along with that, I, at the end of my senior year, was preparing to attend the University of Georgia with my two best friends in the fall. But most importantly to me, there was a girl, an older girl, that I had been talking to through my senior year and had been working pretty hard on, and I felt like I was getting ready to ask her if we could be, you know, official boyfriend-girlfriend, and I was feeling confident that she would say yes. And so, for me, at the end of my senior year, things were looking all right. I would roll up in my used Jeep Grand Cherokee with a carefully crafted mixtape, and you couldn't tell me anything. 
I was involved in my church. I loved, um, loved my family. I loved to, to, to do things at church and to be involved there. And so um, to the outside world, and they looked, when they looked at me, they would say, Will is talented. Will is driven. Will works hard. Well-liked, devoted to family and church. Will is an all-around good guy. But just like Naaman, there was a qualifier at the end of my story that had very, very big implications for the rest of my story. And that qualifier was, Will is a sinner. See, despite what the world saw of 18-year-old Will, that he was a good guy, he had it all going, uh, in my heart, I was allowing sin to grow. And that sin was slowly making me numb to conviction, um, and that sin was leaving me greatly unfulfilled, isolated, and distant from God. <clears throat> I had accepted Christ at a young age, but uh, through that uh, high school career, I didn't walk closely with him, and I was allowing to sin to pull me away from the things of God. And so what I really hoped as a high school student, as an 18-year-old boy, was that those lists of achievements would save me in some way, that those good works would save me, and if they did not, that in some way they would distract from the sin that I hoped that nobody would see. So as I said, I had that list of achievements, and I was really, really banking on that to save me from my sin. But as I entered into college, uh, God began to work in my life and in my heart in a very real way. Began to put my sin before me in a way that I couldn't avoid it, couldn't ignore it. Around that same time, as I said, that older girl that I was hoping would date me, she did say yes the second time I asked her, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and we did start dating, and we, begot, we got very close very quickly. And I knew early on that this was the woman that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And so as we uh, spent the next couple of years together, I was getting ready to get a ring and get down on one knee, and I knew that I was going to marry my wife, Lindsay, then girlfriend, soon to be fiance. And one night we were talking, as you do when you're dating and in a relationship, and we had moved from this surface level superficial stuff, and we were digging in deeper. And we had been talking at that point, it felt like for hours, talking about the future, our past, things we struggle with, uh, dreams we have, all that kind of thing. And uh, for really, I don't really know why, this is not my typical nature, but I was very vulnerable with her, and as we were talking, just confessed some sin that I had been dealing with, things that were weighing me down, things that I felt like I could not overcome. And partly I shared that with her because I trusted her. Partly I shared that with her because I saw a future with her. But it was a scary thing to do in the moment, right? I knew how I felt about her. I figured that she liked me. She was spending a good amount of time with me. But when I laid it all out on the table and I confessed it, she sat there for just a second, probably surprised by some of it. Uh, and it, what felt like an eternity, she sat there. And then finally she said to me, I can only feel compassion towards you because I love you. And I don't want to see you live like this. You know what to do. You've grown up in church. You are a Christian. You have been saved. Go to God. Turn to God. This sin does not have to win. She said, there are men in your life that you can turn to. I'm going to pray with you and pray for you. And in that moment, she pointed me to God in a major way. And I thank God that she still does that today. And so as, I'm, as I was going through this story, what it reminded me is that sin must be addressed. And that's our first point today. Sin must be addressed. I had tried for a long time to address it by my good works or my righteousness or sweep it under the rug, but God graciously kept putting my sin before me and reminded me this sin must be dealt with. So if you are here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sin must be dealt with because your sin has consequences. All sin has consequences. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin are death. And so if sin is left unaddressed, if sin is left unchecked or undealt with, it will lead to death. 
For many of us in here, we are Christians, and we know, and we have been saved, uh, and we know that the payment of our sin, the penalty of our sin, has been paid for by the work of Jesus on the cross. However, my encouragement for you today is the sin that you still deal with, because yes, the payment of your sin, the penalty of your sin has been paid for, but you know that you still deal with sin in a very real way in your walk. And so, don't leave sin unaddressed, because sin has a sneaky way of growing in you. A leper didn't wake up one day covered in sores with their arm falling off and their teeth out of their head. What happened was bumps showed up gradually, and over time, the disease and the decay progressed. So do not leave sin unchecked in your life, because sin left unchecked will grow. See, uh, James 1.15 tells us this, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So do not leave those sins unaddressed or swept under the rug. That's why we have this encouragement in Hebrews 3.13 that says, Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. As I spoke about earlier, I was becoming numb to the things of God because I was allowing sin to grow and sin to go unchecked. So do not allow sin to grow. Sin must be addressed. Which leads me to my second point today, which is that God alone can cleanse us of our sin. So if we look back to the story of Naaman, we see Naaman seeking a cure, right? He could not escape his disease. He knew that it must be addressed in some way. But what we see is that a lot of the people in the story are focusing on the wrong things. So many of them are focused on a cure for Naaman, which makes sense. It's the most pressing need. It's the most imminent need. We see the young girl tell Naaman's wife there is a cure available if he goes to the prophet. We see Naaman's king write to the king of Israel and say, cure my servant Naaman of his leprosy. They're all seeking a cure, but Elisha's instructions don't really talk about a cure. What Elisha says is go to the river, dip yourself seven times, and be cleansed. Because what Elisha understands is that God wants to do abundantly more than just healing Naaman of his physical ailment. He does want to do that, and he will heal Naaman, but God is more, important, uh, more importantly looking at the heart. See, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so God wants to heal Naaman, yes, but cleanse him of his pride and his sin. And so God alone is the only source of that healing. Naaman came to Elisha expecting him to do the healing, but Elisha pointed him to the river so that God would be shown to be the true uh, source of the healing. The king of Aram asked the king of Israel, heal my, my servant, because he didn't understand where the true source of healing came from. So about a year ago, um, I noticed a few things going on with me health-wise. And none of them were terrible, uh, mainly just mildly annoying things that needed to be addressed. And those three things, uh, the first one was that I was noticing, and we already talked about leprosy, which was gross, so this is kind of gross, but I was having ulcers or sores pop up on my lip, inside of my lip, here or here, right in the front of my mouth. And yes, they were painful, but mainly just irritating, right? I couldn't eat properly. It was painful to talk. And they would pop up about once a month. It seemed like it took them forever to go away. And then, boom, another one was coming up right there. And it became a running joke uh, in my household that was only funny to my wife that I would start to kind of talk like this and my lip would poke out because I didn't want the ulcer to touch my teeth. So I tried to address that the best way that I knew how. I used um, medicated creams or whatever. I looked at what I was eating to see if something was causing them. So I just was trying to figure out and treat that the best way that I could. The lip poked out was the most, uh, the best solution that I could come up with. The second thing that I realized was happening was I was having a terrible time falling asleep. I would, when I went to bed, I would stay asleep. However, falling asleep was the hurdle. 
I would go to bed, I would be around 10 o'clock, I was tired, I'd lay down, drift into like a light sleep, and then stir, wake up, and I could not get comfortable, and it would happen for like an hour and a half to two hours, each and every night. Throwing off the covers, putting them back on. So then I eventually decided maybe I'm not waking up early enough, maybe I need to do some more physical activity to get tired out. I tried all these different things, which none of them really worked. And then the last one, which was kind of the most alarming to me, was I just at all times had this like mild sense of stress. Nothing major, nothing that I could pinpoint that I was like, man, this is causing me stress. Uh, it wasn't anything major, but I would sit down after the girls were in bed where I should be able to just relax and feel like I need to get something done or there's something that needs to be done. Just a general uneasiness. And so I, then I was trying to, to kind of figure out all these different things, all these three things that were ailing me. And uh, around that time, I switched to a new dentist, and it was the end of the appointment. He was um, wrapping up, and he's like, any other things bothering you? And I said, well, I've, I've had some ulcers that have been kind of consistent. And so he said, let me look at your teeth again. So he's examining my, my teeth, and he's like, well, have you ever had a, a sleep study done? To which I think, well, no, I sleep through the night. I'm 27 years old, and I asked you about ulcers, so I don't really know what my sleep has to do with that. And he says, I think that you may have sleep apnea. And he said, because oftentimes when you have sleep apnea, you breathe through your mouth, you, you suck in your lips, you breathe, in your, uh, breathe them in. Sleep apnea also causes your neck to tighten and your jaw, which causes you to clench your teeth and then grind. And he said, what I think is happening is you're biting your lip and grinding on it in your sleep. And so I had a sleep study done to find out that, yes, indeed, I do have sleep apnea. And so once I began using a CPAP device, uh, which is really great, I love that. Um, <laughs> We are talking about pride today, so, you know. Uh, once I began using the sleep uh, pap device, or CPAP device, I noticed that I went to bed as soon as I slapped that thing on my face. In two minutes, I was out. I haven't had an ulcer once since using it, and um, that sense of stress has kind of gone away, right? My, all of those issues were due to poor sleep quality. The stress was coming from insufficient rest, poor sleep quality, the ulcers were coming from me grinding my teeth, which was a symptom of the apnea, and then falling asleep was because I was overtired uh, at that point of the night. And so why I share that story today is because I was treating three different issues individually, but there was one source to the problem. And when I recognized that one source to the problem, I then could treat it with the one true solution. See, for many of us, I think we go through our life with issues caused by sin and pride, and we try to slap different Band-Aids on them one by one. And they never really go away, and they never really resolve. If we would be honest and humble, we would address our sin and say, yes, my sin and my pride is a major problem. And in doing that, turn to the one true solution for sin, the one true source of cleansing. I feel like we would walk much differently, right? So I want to, to remind you that God alone is the only place that we can find cleansing for our sins. So in a room this size today, I am not naive to the fact that we are all in different places, right? Some of us maybe have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Some of you have been Christians for 60 plus years and walked closely with the Lord. Some of us are Christians and we are in a season where we are walking in step with Him. Some of us are Christians in seasons where we are drifting away from Him. And I have one final call that is for all of us, no matter where we may be in that walk. And that final call today is this, humbly submit to God and be clean, and be clean. See, Le uh, Naaman had leprosy. He knew his, his illness. It was very apparent to him. Also, a solution of cleansing was offered, but he almost did not follow through because of his own pride. 
because he didn't want to address that he had to humble himself and submit to the Lord. So here is what I want you to take away today. Maybe you are the Christian, or maybe you're the the person in here that has never been a Christian, never accepted Jesus, that confessed him as your Lord and Savior, but you see the real effects of sin. You see the things that you do that you don't want to do, and you see the negative consequences that come from them. You understand that you're a sinner. Humbly submit to God and be cleansed. Jesus Christ is the one true source to pay for those sins, to cleanse you of your sin. Come to God, humbly submit to Him, and be cleansed. Maybe you recognize your sin, but you don't want to address it yet. You've done a really good job for a really long time of sweeping it under the rug, not dealing with it, not thinking about it. You've done a really good job for a really long time of doing good works, hoping that the scale will balance out in your favor, but you're coming to the end of your rope. You're beginning to see that you're never going to be good enough to fix your problem of sin. My encouragement today is humbly submit to God and be clean. Maybe you're thinking, this is a great message, Will, but I figured all that out a long time ago. I was baptized, I believe. I know for without a shadow of a doubt, I have assurance that my sins have been paid for. And I thank God for that. But like I said, sin unaddressed will create consequences and create issues in uh, your walk and your life uh, today. And so maybe the payment of your sin was paid for a long time ago. But you do not need to leave sin unaddressed. See, the call to humbly submit to God and be clean is not a one-time thing. It is a daily thing that we do. We come each and every day, humbly submit to God and be cleansed. And when we mess up, we turn back to Him. We repent of our sin and humbly submit once again. Another encouragement for you, Christian, is be like that servant girl. You know the source of healing. You know the cure to the remedy of sin. And don't sit on that cure. Don't sit on that solution. Be willing to share the good news that that God alone can save us of our sins. So thinking back um, to that night that I read this story to my daughter, Simri, I was reminded in that moment that how the Word of God corrects us, um, it it can redirect us, but what I was really reminded of how the Word of God acts as a mirror so often and helps us to view ourselves rightly. And in that moment reading to my four-year-old, I was reminded that I am a sinner that I'm never going to get past needing the gospel, that I am sick, that I need Jesus each and every day, that my call is to humbly submit to Him, to let go of my pride, let go of the things, the ways that I think it should be done, to let go of the works that I've done and the qualities that I feel like could or would cover my sin. That night, in a very real way, my sin and my pride was before my eyes. And unlike other times in my past uh, when that had happened, I didn't leave when I closed my Bible feeling a great deal of guilt or shame or feeling a hurried sense that I needed to do more or be better. I closed the Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, with my four-year-old laying in her bed, and I had a picture of how beautiful the gospel is, how beautiful it is that there is a God that loves me enough to come and die for my sins. They would see my whole life laid out, see all the sins that I would commit and say, yes, I will come. How wonderful it is that there is healing that can be found for sin. That we don't have to walk through this life struggling and striving. We don't have to walk through this life watching the slow decay happen and knowing that death is coming. But there's healing to be found and it is not dependent on us, on our righteousness or the works that we do. And that that healing comes from God alone through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And so my prayer moving forward is that I never grow numb to the fact that I know where healing comes from that I know the true source of healing, the one that can save, and the God who can heal, and that that God loves me enough 
that he would come in my place and die for me. And so God showed me that night my sin, my pride, my lack of trust, my wanting to control things through my own power, and he showed me that there is a better way when I humbly submit to him and be clean. I'm going to close today with James 4, 6 through 10. It says this, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up.